0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit
1: us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
0: Thank you. Hello, everyone. The title of my talk for tonight is Are Quality of Life Judgments Ethical? I want to start by talking about a patient that I had. Her name is Anne, we'll we'll call her Anne. Anne is 74 years old and presents to the emergency room with aspiration pneumonia and septic shock. She has congestive heart failure, diabetes type two, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pulmonary cachexia, hypertension, and a history of stroke, sepsis, and respiratory failure. She had a G2 placed about six months ago due to ongoing malnutrition. Since that time, she has been in and out of the hospital with increasing frequency for serious bacterial infections. She has difficulty clearing secretions and great difficulty walking. I want you to just think about this patient for a moment. And then I want you to weigh in so you can uh, raise your hand either through Zoom and I just want to hear from you. What do you think about Anne's quality of life? So, what do you, what do you want to say? What do you think you can say about her quality of life? You can also you can also type it in the chat. That's fine too. <laughs> Someone on the chat says that it seems hard. Someone else in the chat says that it seems like the quality of life is poor. You're all hesitant to make any judgment given the title of the talk. I think you're a little worried that it might be unethical to say anything. We have at least two common, so it seems hard, it seems poor, we'll go with that for now. I actually want to just keep this case in mind for now, we're going to come back to it a little later. So just to give you an outline of the talk, the first thing I'm going to do, I actually want to just very briefly summarize what studies show about the ability to judge quality of life. The next thing I'll do is I'll review what the AMA, the American Medical Association Code of Ethics, says about quality of life judgments in healthcare decision-making. Then I will examine what the Catholic tradition says about quality of life judgments. From there, I'm going to clarify meanings, different meanings of quality of life, outline some errors in the of life judgments, And then lastly, I'll end by talking about what role quality of life judgments can have and should have in medical treatment decision-making. So to begin with the studies, this is probably the briefest summary of (laughs) studies you've ever seen, but here I'm just drawing from a number of different studies about judging quality of life. And essentially, the studies show that sometimes from the outside, we correctly judge a patient's quality of life. That is, we judge it as the patient would, him or herself. And sometimes the studies show that we don't correctly judge the patient's quality of life. Just to give one particular example, studies do consistently show with respect to persons with disabilities in particular, that from the outside, we underestimate the quality of life of persons with disabilities. One thing that's interesting, though, is that other studies show that persons with disabilities sometimes themselves overestimate certain, uh, certain abilities that they have. So things that can be judged objectively from the outside, persons with disabilities overestimate, but then other people judging the person's quality of life tends to underestimate the quality of life. The AMA code of medical ethics speaks about the quality of life from the perspective of the patient, including when decisions are made by decision makers. The AMA Code of Medical Ethics says that surrogate decision makers should take into account the patient's quality of life as experienced by the patient. So the AMA Code of Medical Ethics doesn't say that much, all that much about quality of life judgments, but it does have this line that indicates that this, the decisions, the judgments are made from the patient's perspective. What does the Catholic tradition say about quality of life judgments? There seems to be some concern, I think, in Catholic circles that quality of life judgments are inherently unethical, or at least that the language of quality of life maybe shouldn't be used because it's very often tied up in advocacy for things such as abortion and euthanasia. Let's take a look, though, at what the teaching documents related to healthcare ethics say about quality of life judgments. And I'm starting here with St. Pope John Paul II's encyclical letter, Evangelium Vitae, which is An encyclical that he wrote in 1995 that focuses on life issues in particular. So, in this letter, he warns against understanding quality of life as I'm going to highlight the part I'm going to read out loud. So, he warns against understanding quality of life primarily or exclusively as economic efficiency, inordinate consumerism, physical beauty, and pleasure to the neglect of the more profound dimensions, interpersonal, spiritual and religious of existence. So he seems to indicate that consideration of quality of life is not inherently problematic or inherently unethical, but it must be rightly understood. So namely, it must be understood to include interpersonal, spiritual, and religious dimensions, as well as these other dimensions that might be more commonly, more commonly considered. Later in Evangelium Vitae, he writes that the growing attention being paid to quality of life is a welcome sign. So it's clear, again, that he doesn't think that quality of life language is inherently problematic. And in fact, he specifically says that paying attention to quality of life is a good thing. So next, looking at the Charter for Healthcare Workers from the Pontifical Council for Pastoral Assistance to Healthcare Workers. This, the most recent addition here is from 2016. This document speaks of the duty of healthcare workers to improve the quality of patients' lives. So again, it it seems to speak positively of thinking about quality of life with an eye toward improving the patients' lives. The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith Recent 2020 letter on end-of-life ethics, Maritano's bonus, speaks of the wrongful equating of quality of life with the value of a person's life. This next quote that I just put up from the CDF document affirms the intrinsic value of every human life. And it says that the wrongful equating of quality of life with the value of someone's life Wrongfully measures, I'm going to highlight again wrongfully measures the quality by the possession or lack of particular psychological or physical functions, or sometimes simply by the presence of psychological discomfort. Just above, you can see where I read it's quoting Evangelium Vitae's corrective that quality of life must include all dimensions of a person's life. And then the third quote that I have here. From this CDF letter speaks again positively about the goal of improving patients' quality of life. The last document that we'll look at is the USCCB's document the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services or the ERDs the most recent addition being from 2018 the ERDs don't actually use the phrase quality of life but they speak about the well-being of the person and similarly to what john paul ii says they talk about how the well-being of the whole person must be taken taken into account And specifically, it says that the well-being of the whole person must be taken into account in deciding about medical treatments, in considering the benefits and the burdens of treatments that the Catholic tradition says we need to take into account in making medical treatment decisions. The ERDs also state that making judgments about benefits and burdens are in the judgment of the patient. As you can see here, so here, the ERDs align with what the AMA code says regarding who is making the quality of life judgment or the judgment about the well-being of the patient In the language of the ERDs. Here's how I think we can put together what we've seen in the studies, the AMA code, and the Catholic tradition while maintaining the moral principles of the Catholic tradition. So, first, we can distinguish quality of life from sanctity of life. Sanctity of life is a bedrock principle in the Catholic tradition, referring to the intrinsic worth or the inherent value of all human persons just by virtue of being human. So, this worth, this intrinsic worth of the human person, isn't lessened because of sickness or disability or Lack of relationships, but we just all have the same intrinsic worth by virtue of being human to ask the question of the talk are quality of life judgments ethical? well, not inherently as we've seen that it seems it seems fine to to judge quality of life, especially with an eye toward improving it, as we saw in the different church teaching documents but If the judgment involves equating the quality of life with the value of a person's life, as the CDF has warned against, then this would be morally problematic because it would would go against the understanding of the sanctity of human life, the intrinsic worth of human persons. Second, I think we can distinguish two senses of quality of life, the first of which I'm calling the internal view of quality of life. I'm going to define this inner view quality of life as how well a person's life is going for him or her based on, for example, physical, psychological, social, economic, and spiritual factors and how he or she weighs these in relation to each other. So again, recall that Pope St. John Paul II talks about the need to include interpersonal, spiritual, and religious factors. So I've mentioned these here in this definition. So, again, the question of the talk is it unethical to make a quality of life judgment in this internal view sense? Well, I would say no, it seems appropriate to judge how well your life is going for you. This seems to be important self knowledge. Insofar as the AMA code of ethics and the ERDs agree that quality of life or well being is judged by the person, him or herself. I would say that this internal view seems to be the most proper sense of quality of life. However, the phrase is certainly also used in reference to other people's lives. And so I think we can talk about an external view sense of quality of life, which I'll define as how well others think a person's life is going for him or her based primarily on observable factors. So again, we can ask, is it unethical to make quality of life judgment in in this external view sense and i would say that judging someone else's quality of life is not necessarily unethical and again as we saw in the different church teaching documents it seems that it's actually a good thing to to consider a person's quality of life with an eye toward helping to improve their quality of life the church teaching documents all speak positively about this however i would say That we need to keep in mind that from the outside, judging a person's quality of life, of course, we cannot, we can, we can be wrong. We cannot fully know the experience of the person. And remember to go back to the studies, that very brief summary of the studies that I told you about. The studies also corroborate this that we can be wrong. We certainly can be wrong with respect to what another person's quality of life is. So let's go back to Anne with these distinctions in mind. So first, with respect to Anne's sanctity of life, with respect to the sanctity of her life, I think we can say fairly, very surely that Anne has the same intrinsic worth as every other human person. With respect to the external view sense of quality of life, and I think this is where you guys were coming from at the beginning of the talk when you said it was seemed like it was poor you're judging it from the outside. And and I think that many people would say, if not most people would say that Anne's quality of life is poor due to her medical conditions, her G-tube, her frequent hospitalizations, and limited mobility. So again, these are things that are observable from the outside. What about her internal view, quality of life, the internal view sense of her quality of life? So I have to tell you that Anne was one of those patients that just really surprised me because I agree with those of you who said from the outside, it seems like her quality of life is really poor. But when I talked to Anne, it really struck me that she actually judged her quality of life to be quite good. So she experienced the burdens of her medical conditions and their treatments. She wasn't in denial about them. She didn't pretend as if they weren't happening. But on a whole, she still judged her quality of life to be good. And in particular, she mentioned her ability to go home after each hospitalization and to just watch her grandchildren playing, to sit at the dinner table with them. And she talked about just how happy this made her. What accounts for the difference between the external view and the internal view here in the quality of life judgments? So for one thing, Anne has more information about her life than an outsider does. So she knows about her family situation. She knows that she has grandchildren. She knows she sits at the dinner table with her family. But even if an outsider had this information about Anne, they still might very well judge that her quality of life is poor. Why? Because to judge someone's quality of life as the person would, we need to know not just all of the different aspects of the person's life that would factor into their quality of life judgment, but we also need to know how much they value these different aspects and how they weigh them in relation to each other. So in Anne's case, what we learn about Anne is that the ability to watch her grandchildren playing and to sit at the dinner table with them is of such great value that for her, It outweighs the disvalue of her limitations, such that she still says that on a whole, her quality of life is good. Note that Anne's values likely have changed over the course of her life, such that she wouldn't always have weighed things this way. So just because now the ability to watch her grandchildren playing and to sit at the dinner table with them outweighs the disvalue of her limitations, that not that's not necessarily that is that hasn't necessarily always been true for her, that she weighs those different values and disvalues in relation to each other in that way. At this point, we've distinguished sanctity of life from quality of life. And also we've distinguished different senses of quality of life. And I've said that it doesn't seem unethical to make quality of life judgments about oneself or about others, about one's own quality of life or about the quality of life of others. But I do think that there are errors, I mean, common errors related to quality of life judgments that it's important to keep in mind, some of which I've alluded to already. The first that I'll mention, first error related to quality of life judgments is the equating of the worst worth of a person with his or her quality of life. And this equation, of the worth of a person with his or her quality of life is warned about by the CDF as we saw a little bit earlier. Along the same lines, another error related to quality of life judgments is judging that things such as abortion and euthanasia are morally permissible for those who don't, who won't or don't have a sufficiently good quality of life. And these first two errors, I think we can be talking about either the internal view or the external view. Okay, with respect to the external view sense of quality of life in particular, there would be an error in thinking that we can definitively make an external judgment about a person's quality of life. So remember that studies show that we don't always rightly judge the quality of life of others. And so we need to keep in mind that we could be wrong. What do we do about this? I think first, it's important one, well, one, to keep in mind that we could be wrong. Second, I think it's important to ask people questions, to learn more about various aspects of their lives so that we can have a more accurate picture of their quality of life. Here, I want to say, though, that the person is an expert. The person has all the information, has All of this information that an outsider doesn't have about various aspects of his or her life. But in the medical context, the professional also brings important information to the table. So only the patient knows the details of the patient's life, but the professional too has expertise about, for instance, the patient's medical condition, about risks and side effects of treatment. And I think that there's a place for the professional to relay his or her external judgments to the patient about these sorts of things. But here, it seems to me that it's best to avoid quality of life language here, because the professional is really focusing on particular factors rather than the patient's life as a whole. So this is why I'm saying that even though there's a, there might be an external judgment about the patient's quality of life, that is based on factors which the professional has expertise regarding, I still think it's best to avoid quality of life language here. And it's better just to be more specific about what you're talking about. So if you're talking about the patient's ability to participate in daily functions, then use that language of participation in daily functions. If you're talking about the benefits or the burdens of medical treatment, then use that language of the benefit and burden, benefits and burdens of medical treatment rather than using quality of life language which i think can be confusing since again maybe in the proper sense really it's that internal view that the patient him or herself judges so in some i think that it's appropriate to use quality of life language when you're talking about your own quality of life or asking someone else about his or her quality of life and how to improve it but otherwise when we're talking about the external view sense, I think it's better just to be more specific about what you're talking about. The fourth error that I think it's important to keep in mind is this one, that judging a medical treatment, or this is the error, judging that a medical treatment should not be pursued merely on the basis that a person does not have a sufficiently good quality of life. So to speak more to this error, we can ask this question, do quality of life judgments have a role at all to play in medical treatment decision-making? And I think the answer to that question is yes, but its role should be within the context of the Catholic tradition, which recognizes the inherent worth of human persons, prohibits actions such as abortion and in euthanasia and also provides a way of discerning when we should accept medical treatment and when it's permissible to withdraw or withhold medical treatment. So let me turn to this distinction that the Catholic tradition makes between morally obligatory and morally optional medical treatments. Let me provide a sketch of this distinction, and then we'll return to the consideration of how quality of life judgments are relevant. So, so just briefly, the Catholic Church distinguishes between what, what are called sometimes ordinary means and extraordinary means. This distinction is a moral distinction, it's not a medical one. And we talking about when we talk about means, we're talking about medical treatments, and we're talking about the decision to withdraw treatment. Oh, and also treatments and also decisions to withhold treatments. So whether we're making a decision to withdraw or to withhold treatments, this distinction is, is pertinent. So what makes a treatment ordinary or extraordinary? So first, ordinary means are also called proportionate means by the tradition. And when we talk about ordinary proportionate means, we're talking simply about treatments that are morally obligatory. Extraordinary means, on the other hand, are also called disproportionate means. And when we what we mean when we say extraordinary or disproportionate means, what we mean is that these treatments are morally optional. And what makes a treatment ordinary? What makes a treatment extraordinary? So here I'm I've included a quote from the ERDs, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Services. ERD 56. Says that proportionate means are those that, in the judgment of the patient, offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. On the other hand, the ERD 57 says that disproportionate means are those that, in the patient's judgment, again, note. The attention to in the judgment of the patient or in the patient's judgment do not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. The Catholic tradition also speaks about the weighing of the benefits and the burdens. So, when benefits outweigh the burdens, we're speaking of proportionate means, or when burdens outweigh benefits, we're speaking of disproportionate means. A few things to highlight here with respect to this moral distinction and and making this discernment. So when we talk about the benefits and the burdens and weighing those against each other to determine whether a treatment is morally optional or morally obligatory, we are talking about the benefits and the burdens of the treatment itself, the medical treatment itself, not the patient's life. So just consider a child who has significant disabilities, who will never walk or talk, but who develops appendicitis and needs surgery. It would be wrong to not do the surgery because of the difficulties of the child's life, right? So we're, we're not considering the difficulties of a child's life. When we're considering benefits and burdens, we're considering the benefits and the burdens of the treatment itself. So in this case, the appendectomy, likely the benefit to the child of the appendectomy is going to significantly outweigh the burdens in this case for this child. And so even though the child's life might entail many difficulties and burdens, this does not at all mean that treatment would be disproportionate or optional for for the child. Another thing to highlight with respect to this discernment is that the Catholic tradition holds a broad notion of benefits and burdens. So note in the language of the ERD is that the benefits and the burdens we're considering in relation to not just the patient, but also to the family and the community and elsewhere in the tradition we see that we're considering not just medical benefits and burdens, but also psychological, financial, social, spiritual, et cetera. Okay, so just to to illustrate maybe more what we're talking about here, if we ask this question, are antibiotics ordinary or extraordinary? Whenever we ask about a generic type of treatment, the answer is always going to be, it depends. it depends because the benefits and the burdens are going to look different depending on the patient depending on the situation i think we could say though that generally antibiotics to treat pneumonia in an otherwise healthy person would be considered to be ordinary proportionate means those it would be a treatment where the benefits of the treatment would outweigh the burdens of the treatment on the other hand i think Generally, we could say that antibiotics to treat an infection when a patient is imminently dying from another cause would be considered an extraordinary or disproportionate treatment and so therefore morally optional, that there wouldn't be a reasonable hope of benefits and the benefits in this case would not outweigh the burdens. So where does quality of life fit in? So recall that the benefits and the burdens, as I just said, are with respect to the treatment itself, not the patient's life. However, as I've mentioned, the aspects of the patient's life must be considered in order to consider what the benefits or the burdens and the burdens will be for that particular patient, including, so the aspects of the patient's life, including the quality of life of the patient. So as it as I say here, the question of benefit and burden in large part is a question of how a particular medical treatment affects or will affect the quality of life of a patient. To be clear, it's not the case, as I've mentioned, that we can decide not to do a treatment because the patient has a poor quality of life, but we need to consider the benefits in relation to the burdens. And I think part of what counts as a benefit is going to be whether the treatment and and how much it maintains or improves the quality of life of the patient. The burdens, I think, are going to include how much the treatment detracts from the quality of life of the patient. So to go back to the example of antibiotics, right? So I said that antibiotics to treat pneumonia in an otherwise healthy person likely would fall under Morally obligatory treatment, where the benefits outweigh the burden. So what are the benefits? Let's be more specific, right? So one of the benefits is treating the pneumonia. We could also say it's restoring the patient's quality of life. What are the burdens? I think the burdens also can largely be understood as detractions from the patient's quality of life. So the burden of antibiotic in this case would likely be some temporary negative impacts on the patient's quality of life, such as GI issues. I want to end with this, that regardless of a decision to pursue a particular treatment. So whether you or the patient, whomever whoever we're talking about, decides to pursue a particular treatment or decides not to pursue a particular treatment. And as I think I've shown, hopefully, quality of life judgments do factor into that decision. But regardless of what the decision is, I want to end with this. that I think it's important to ask these questions. How can we, how can I improve this person's quality of life? So going back again to the church teaching documents that this, I think is always a question that we should have in mind when we're thinking about quality of life. How can we help improve this person's quality of life? And then relatedly, how can we help this person to express or experience his or her intrinsic worth as a human person. I think that things that help a person to express or experience his or her intrinsic worth are things that will that help to improve the quality of life of the person. I'll we'll end there, but I'm looking forward to questions and discussions. Thank you.
2: Okay. Yeah. Can you turn the slide back to where you defined um, I think it was ordinary means oh yeah yes ordinary means and extraordinary means okay so proportionate means are those that in the judgment of the patient offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community so I understand the sentiment is to be really specific about defining um, ordinary means. But then it seems like the wording like reasonable hope or excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community, it seems like you're then laying the definition kind of in the hands of the family or the community because how would they define an excessive expense? Does that make sense? Like the definition seems like it's put into the power of the family or the community to define what is excessive burden or what is um, excessive, an ex- excessive expense. So, and while I, for, yeah, so while I understand the sentiment of it trying to define ordinary means clearly, I wonder who really has the power in um, like moving that, that pivot of excessive or reasonable hope. Does that make sense? Is that a clear question? I don't know if I'm making sense.
0: I think so. So it's it sounds to me that you're trying to clarify whether this is meant to be a subjective judgment, that whether the Catholic tradition intends it to be a subjective judgment. Is that is that does that sound right?
2: Um, sort of. I guess how do you define reasonable hope and how would you define excessive burden versus like um enough burden. Okay,
0: I think I got it. I got the question. So the Catholic tradition doesn't define <laughs> what counts as a reasonable hope or an excessive burden. So this is something that I think is really important to understand about the Catholic moral tradition, that I think there's often misconceptions about. But the Catholic tradition, the Catholic Church gives us often moral principles, such as this distinction, the moral distinction here. But as far as applying that principle, there's some specific guidance from the church, there is on on very particular issues, but most of the time it's left to the individual with a well-formed conscience to make this determination. So not only is the patient responsible for thinking through the benefits and the burden? So, what counts as a benefit for that patient? What counts as a burden for that patient? But as you pointed out, there's this task that's that's part of it of of judging whether there's a reasonable hope of benefit, judging whether it's an excessive burden. So, the church doesn't spell it out; doesn't give us a list of you know this is. You know, if there it doesn't, doesn't give us a percentage, you know, it has to be, you know, less than 1% effective <laughs> um, for it to for there to be no reasonable hope of benefit. But rather, this is left to the judgment of the individual, again, with a well-formed conscience. Um, it's left to the individual's judgment. And I, I do think it's important to stress that the conscience must be well formed, that the person has a duty really to seek out counsel, to seek out good counsel if if there's uncertainty, to pray about it. Um, But ultimately, I think this really shows us the great dignity of conscience in the Catholic tradition, at the same time preserving the responsibility of persons to form their conscience, which includes forming it according to church teaching. Does that that help? That that was a really
2: good answer. So maybe to sum up what you were saying help me understand this a little bit better. Are you kind of saying that the Catholic tradition points you to, hey, we're going to try to define things as best as we can so that you will take the time to sit down and responsibly think about what's right and wrong. And then with the, like a formed conscious, like you said, the decision is then up to you to decide what would be defined as excessive expense or excessive burden. But it's kind. Of, the sentiment is kind of like, we're, we're gonna point you in the right direction with these guiding principles, but you will have to make that decision when you get there kind of thing.
0: I would probably frame it a little bit differently. I don't think that the church is trying to say, okay, you know, we're gonna say this much and then the rest is up to you. I think it's partially, um, I mean, just think practically that the church could not possibly address every particular situation. Uh, The church can't possibly address every particular medical decision for every particular patient. I think that that's just obvious. It's just, I mean, it would be, it would be impossible. Right. And so the church provides moral principles and just the nature of a moral principle is that it needs to be applied in in a particular situation. And so, so the, the principle, again, it's provided by the church, it's taught by the church. But then because the church can't speak to every particular situation, we then have the responsibility of using that principle to make a judgment in our situation. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. That's a good question
3: would it be okay if um, I just try to expound a little bit on that question? I think it's actually a great question. Thank you so much for answering it, doctor. Um, I, I My understanding is that um, anything that we do and we're called to do as Catholics, um, should we be Catholic, is actually part and parcel in the definition of what human dignity is. Okay. And so if we look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, our human dignity is derived from the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God. But what does that mean? What that means is that, you know, it, being in the the image of, and likeness of God is that we don't only imitate, but we are expected to love as God loves Self giving love, or what's considered agape love. And so, if what we're talking about is end of life decisions, if what we're talking about is quality of life decisions, um, I think central to that is actually what it means to have that human dignity, to be treated with that dignity we so deserve as human beings things through whatever stage of life we're in. And that conscience that we have is formed and informed by the church as well as our communities and whatever and our faith back, you know our faith and our grounding in the faith. But there are very specific dogmas and doctrines of the Catholic Church that we can't ignore, in that formation either. So I think we can get into relativistic territory really quickly once we start talking about formed and informed conscience without defining what that means and as a matter of what the church imparts to us. And so I think it's, it can be a very complicated answer, but I think ultimately we are called to act in and with love for others, for the persons we are caring for, for the persons that we are helping and for ourselves. And that can guide much
0: of what we do. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate uh, what you said there to I I guess I would maybe say, say it this way, right, that um, what I've discussed or what I just said can sound pretty technical and can sound like, hey, okay, here's what we should do, here's what we shouldn't do, but I appreciate that you drew our attention to love as being should should be the, the motivating factor here that uh, we don't want to just be following these laws because we should do them because uh, out of just as a sense of duty or a fear of punishment but out of out of love for God uh, that we we follow the directives that we have that have been handed on to us by the church that he instituted.
3: okay um, we did get a comment in the chat box from dr rolled in, um, if you're able to, are you able to see that comment?
0: I do see it. I do see it. Yes. So it says, from a secular point of view, ordinary means would amount to the standard of care or what the health regulatory bodies prove to be covered by health insurance. So I don't think that ordinary means just maps on directly to standard of care. Or to what's covered by insurance. This is—it's a moral judgment, and, and actually, maybe I'd like to maybe learn more about why um, why it seems that it maybe does just map on directly. And I'm wondering if it's because of the financial consideration—is that—is maybe that's what's driving
1: the question? Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Yeah, sorry. So I was just uh, taking off from the point of Robin earlier about who determines excessive, or uh, the family or community. I guess the community, uh, the surrogate would be the the regulatory body. So, uh, the, because that's how we do it as doctors. Those standard of care we offer, and hopefully the patients will accept the treatment. But for those dying patients or those with rare diseases who uh, entail very costly drugs or treatments that is excessive from an external quality of life point of view, but of course, it might probably improve the internal quality of life of the patient. That's where the extraordinary needs come in. That's why ethics boards of hospitals also have, you know, a varied composition from uh, religious groups, patient uh, advocates, uh, health professionals and health policymakers because that's where all the balancing of the the ethics of it is discussed uh, it's not a, an easy decision to make but i guess that's one way of thinking about ordinary and extraordinary things just a comment thank you okay i so i would i would caution
0: against just thinking that they map on Exactly. So just maybe to give a, a couple of examples why I don't think they necessarily map on, although I, I think you're right, that probably often standard of care is going to fall under ordinary means. But I could imagine a situation where something is standard of care, but because of the particular situation of the patient, it's actually morally optional because of the burdens for that particular patient, it would be morally optional. So. I do think that standard of care probably often is going to fall under ordinary means, but I do think that there would be situations where it it wouldn't, um, because we have to be so attentive to the particulars of the situation in weighing the benefits and the burdens with respect to what's covered by insurance. Again, this is just one factor, um, but I I do think that I mean I don't think that we need to to try to you know, sweep this under the rug or pretend it's it's not true. But I mean, the Catholic tradition does does say very clearly that financial burdens can be considered. And so, if there's a patient who who doesn't have insurance coverage for something, that is something they can take into account in judging the benefits and the burdens and and weighing them against each other. Um, so it's not. The determining factor I don't think but it, but the tradition does does say that this is something to be taken into account. So again, I I would warn against just saying that these map on exactly to this distinction, but uh, I think that there's some important things that that you've pointed pointed us to. Yeah,
1: sorry, just another. And I also agree that uh, Standard of care may, may also be morally optional for a particular patient. That's why it's really important the informed consent. Because, not necessarily that it's a standard of care, that it will already will automatically be given to patients. That's why I said, uh, hopefully, the patients accept the treatment. But if they're not, because of their particular situation, then the doctors, the healthcare team shall respect that decision. That's it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. So, so, so that's right. I think, like you said, this points us to the importance of informed consent. At the same time, and and here I would maybe add a caution. Another thing that the ERDs say is that the free and informed consent. I'm trying to think of the exact language. The free and informed consent of the patient should normally be complied with, unless it's contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. So. Just to maybe to go back to the first question about how subjective this judgment is. So uh, when I answered that question, I, I, I emphasized the subjective nature of the judgment, but I maybe now here want to step back and emphasize that it's a subjective judgment within the whole Catholic moral tradition. So it's a subjective judgment, but it's bounded by other principles and teachings of the Catholic Church. so if somebody judges a, you know something that is standard of care, if they if they want to de- decline it, they don't they're refusing this treatment, if it's a treatment that would be obligatory to accept if the, if the church teaches that it would be obligatory to accept it then then that has to be also factored in. So there are some particular teachings. I think I, I mentioned this, um, that we have this moral principle and then there, the church does give us particular applications as well. Um, so just to, to again, to, to reiterate here that there's very much a subjective judgment, but it's within the context of the moral life. Uh, of the Catholic moral life that the church gives us. And I think this is gonna have to be our last question. We have a question in the chat box from Sam Russell. The question says, what are some practical things a person can do to accompany an elderly family member through weighing quality of life decisions? I think this is a good question. And I I think one thing, the the first thing I wanna say is to, to emphasize the importance of these kinds of conversations. So, and, and to emphasize the importance of them, not just when a patient is elderly or or approaching the end of life, but to emphasize their importance much earlier on. So when a person is young and healthy is is really the best time to start having conversations. So, So typically if we're, we're talking about Uh, a young healthy person, they would be the one I think it's important for them to initiate a conversation with whomever they're appointing to make medical decisions if they're not able to. So whether we're talking about this situation of a young healthy person talking to whomever they have appointed to make medical decisions if they're not able to, or talking about the case of speaking with an elderly family member about, about medical decisions. In both cases, I think it's important to to talk about, as this question is is asking, specifics with respect to their values, their interests. Um, So again, the Catholic tradition gives us principles, but how we apply the principle the particular things we value in our life, that's going to vary from person to person, how much we vary certain things, that's going to vary from person to person. And to have these conversations is important so that I think the person we're talking about in the case of speaking with an elderly family member to help them to think through if they haven't done this themselves. Um, and again, in the case of a younger, healthy person, so that the person who you, you aren't trusting to make decisions for you has a better sense for what your your values, what your wishes are. What are some practical things? Let me go back to the question now. So what are some practical things a person can do to accompany an elderly family member to weighing quality of life decisions? Like I said, having the conversation, number one, (laughs) is a very practical thing. Um, And not just one conversation. I guess I could say that as as a practical thing to do is that, uh, Likely these are ongoing conversations. I these are probably ongoing conversations. And one other, I'm going to say one other, I'm going to say one other thing. Practically speaking, is to be specific. So I've kind of spoken to that general conversation about values, and part of that conversation, as I've mentioned before, is also the context of the Catholic tradition. So recognizing how the Catholic tradition is also going to inform treatment decisions, but also then to be attentive to the particulars that in the case of an elderly person, maybe they already are needing to consider. So with respect to a particular treatment, to be specific about the benefits and the burdens of that particular treatment for that particular person based on where they are in their life, based on what kind of support they have, based on what other medical conditions they have. So I think being attentive to particulars, so not just speaking abstractly, but how does this particular treatment impact your quality of life? How do you think it will impact your quality of life? And here is where I'll also go back to what I said during the presentation, that the input from the medical professionals is also important, I think. So often in my clinical ethics work, I would see patients or families weighing decisions, weighing benefits and burdens without really a clear picture of what the treatment involves or what, say, the post-op period looks like what the rehabilitation period looks like. So I think it's important, in addition to helping the patient to think through their own values, to think through how it's going to affect them in their lives, but also to get the input from the medical side as well, um, so that that can also be taken into account.